something outside. What is that? episode of Monstrex Radio, your host here, Shane Corson, and Monstrex Radio is brought to you by Sasquatch Coffee, Have You Tried It Yeti? And like I've been promoting the last few weeks here, we're getting here in the, uh, the holidays here, the Christmas holiday, and uh, if you'd like to try some Sasquatch Coffee, go over to sasquatchcoffee.com and pick yourself up some uh, for yourself or a loved one. It's great. It's really great tasting coffee. It will uh, get you on your feet. Uh, having said that, uh, this is Monster X Radio. We are a show about all things Sasquatch, and I have a great show lined up for you this evening. Um, our guest today is Leon Faller. He's a he's an author based out of Portland, Oregon, and I had met Leon um, this past August at the Oregon Bigfoot Festival. I didn't get a whole lot of time to speak with him, uh, but I was very impressed. He, he's uh, he's written this book called uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch Resurgence of a Native American Indian Legends. Uh, it has over 100 Native American Indian tribes with legends, stories, and uh, some of these date back to 1603. I was very intrigued uh, by this book. I know uh, Leon's been busy editing uh, the latest version, and um, but I was very intrigued talking with him and uh, his approach and the amount of research he's done to bring this book into fruition. So uh, without further ado, Leon, are you there? Yes. Yes, I am. How's it going? Great. It's going great. Thank you so much for, for joining me today or this evening. Uh, I'm uh, Like I was, I was telling the audience, I'm very impressed with uh, our initial uh, conversation. Though short, uh, we we subsequently talked, uh, and I had to get you on the show because I'm very impressed with this book. I think it's got a lot of significance to uh, the Sasquatch phenomena, to research of the, the of the subject, and I'm very impressed with uh, the amount of stuff you've managed to compile uh, and expand upon. And if you don't mind, could you tell the, the audience a little bit uh, about how you got involved with the Sasquatch phenomena and why you went the direction of uh, looking into Native American accounts and, and, and writing a book on that? Sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, uh, was interested in the subject. I think it was like 2008, you know, uh, you, there was just so much documentary stuff on uh, TV about, you know, about these things. And, uh, you know, I was working, uh, out in Lake County and, uh, sometimes I'd stay on the, uh, cement road. My friend had a place and, uh, it was like a one bedroom place and he had his whole family there. So I'd have to stay in the vehicle, you know, parked in front. And, uh, incidentally, you know, this is, uh, near, uh, I think it was highway 20. I, you know, I think it was, I mean, I'm not sure, but 
you have three major highways, this Highway 20, another highway up that has a Hay Fork town that's also been known for Bigfoot sighting, and then up the, the 299 or the Bigfoot Highway, I believe. Right? I think that's what it is, where Willow Creek yeah. is there and all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, I used to stay in the vehicle there just, you know, in front of my friend's house, and uh, the highway was the next road over, and the next road up was the uh, – uh, dirt road and there was so nothing but uh kind of looked like just woods but you had houses here and there kind of private lands but in the mendocino national forest and up into the humboldt trinity national forest and all of there uh but, but you know had a you know some there there was activity there you know which is kind of interesting uh you uh stuff you know I don't know if it, it if it hurts. I don't like to talk too much about uh, my sightings and stuff because I don't know if that kind of helps with the whole thing in general. You know what I mean? Because John yeah. Will, John Wallinson Green was somebody who uh, graduated from Columbia University uh, in university in British Columbia, and he said that you know uh, a lot of times when people mention their own sightings, you know, especially more than one, and not even just sightings, but you know, activity that that that's the kind of skeptic or subject, you know, um, but I've had, you know, things like, you know, heard wood being broken, you know, uh, things like that, you know, things I couldn't really explain, you know, and, right. uh, wanted to kind of find out more, um, about, about these things. And, uh, you know, I mean, around the same time, you know, this is around 2012, David Pauleads had written a book, uh, about missing persons, you know, and uh, interestingly enough, he did two books previously that were about Bigfoot, and I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, and I was wondering about the Native American Indian legends about describing Sasquatch, because I've heard that they've had that the Native Americans have stories describing them. Um, and also, you know, so I've looked into that, and uh, and and even some of the missing person stuff. And uh, a lot, you have a lot of stuff that's. Uh, very much similar, you know, the the contrast between the missing persons reports actually that I've looked at in the missing four and one books and the Native American Indian legends that describe the behavior of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but there's a Malala pictograph actually that's in the book uh, Pictographs of Oregon. That's from 1937 that shows this big shadowy figure uh, and a bunch of, you know, like a cattle drive and people and stuff. But the big shadowy figure is huge, and it's labeled as bearskin rug in the uh, book. But it has like a figure in dress on the arm of the uh, of the figure. Uh, and uh, incidentally, in the David Pauley's missing four in one book, and then I heard on the radio there was the story of Dennis Martin, and uh, unfortunately, Dennis Martin was described as abducted by a Sasquatch or something described to be a Sasquatch as well. Right. Are, are you aware of the Dennis Martin case? I, I am. I'm, I'm not sure if the, the, the audience as a whole is. I am because I, I've, I've read quite a few of David Pauly's uh, Missing 401 books, especially the West Coast version. But if, you wanna, if, you, if you're really familiar with it and like to share a little bit about that, because I think it applies to kind of uh, – it sounds like it, it, it made its mark with you. There is uh, – uh, in the Wenatchee, uh, the, the, uh, the, there is a story – of uh, a Wenatchee uh, tribal man who describes his encounter with what he calls Joanito, which means night people, 
when he was hunting uh, near Wenatchee Lake, he describes having been uh, kidnapped or taken to live with Cho and Ito throughout the winter and was brought back to his familiar surroundings in the springtime. Incidentally, in the David Paul Reed's book, Missing 4 and 1, uh, uh, Western United States and Canada, there's the story of uh, a kid, a two-year-old, who goes missing at Wenatchee Lake uh, when his parents had heard him scream, and then they run to the camper, and then he wasn't there. Let me see if I can uh, find that here. Uh, but I don't have that uh, the name exactly at the top of yeah. my head. There's, uh, you know, things like that. I mean, things that, you know, uh, people should definitely kind of look at history more and, uh, you know, to kind of get some more of the, the answers about uh, things. But, uh, yeah, there was actually, that's from the 2002 book. Yeah, that's described. The hunter had mentioned being kidnapped by Cho and Ito. Uh, and then in the missing 411 Western United States and Canada, there's the uh, unfortunate disappearance of Jimmy Duffy. He goes missing at Wenatchee Lake after his parents hear him scream and they run to the camper shell and they go to the camper shell and he's not there. But things like that, you know, um, you know, there's kind of like that parallel contrast. Just that's one example right there, uh, just kind of to begin with. Uh, you know, isn't that kind of weird that, uh, you know, someone hears someone scream, and then they run to, like, the camper shell where they're supposed to be, and then they go there, and then the person isn't there? Mm-hmm. It's pretty weird. Yeah, yeah, definitely weird. I mean, it sounds like... Uh... You you you've had your own experiences, uh, a possible Sasquatch experience. You've, you at least got something you can't explain, and so you got you interested in in the Bigfoot phenomena from there. And then you kind of started doing research into the Native American accounts. You know, uh, partly because probably uh, uh, some of the books and, and stuff you've been looking into um, and uh, whatnot. But what 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 brought you to where you're at now, where you've written this book? Um, you're, you're, you're revising it, you know, you're doing a new rendition of this book, updating it. What brought you to, what compelled you to, to write a book and put together so many fantastic uh, uh, tidbits from Native Americans, all these different uh, Native Americans from around, you know, uh, the country? Right. Um, it's, um, you know, there were some, some research was kind of done in, in that direction in, in 2008. I remember watching a on the History Channel, Kathy Moskowitz-Strain had mentioned uh, that the Native Americans have legends and stories describing these. And, uh, you know, I there was another uh, show on the History Channel where uh, James Bobo Fay and Cliff Berrickman uh, were going down a river doing call blasting. And uh, this is, you know, that was an episode that was a lot of the Native American legends uh, describing Sasquatch. Uh, you know, Kathy Moskowitz Strain did a book in 2008 of uh, 57 tribes uh, that have legends, you know, of, you know, scary, sinister figures uh, and Native American legends and stories uh, that are, you know, a lot of people don't think that they're Bigfoot. But, you know, some of them, I, I wondered how it was put in that context. And a lot of them did seem kind of like that, like a big giant. But the way it's described is real scary. Uh, Henry James Franzoni had put a book together that was a lot of place names and things and, and going back in history to, you know, it was uh, places that were Skookum named locations in the Pacific Northwest 
you know, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Canada, um, Alaska, Skookamink places, you know, like 214 or 213 that coincide with where current Bigfoot or Sasquatch sightings reports are. And there's a lot of the old legends, the old lore. One of the stories that's not sourced in the Kathy Moskowitz strain book, Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, is actually uh, about the from among the Clackamas tribe and the story of the Skookum, Skookums at Willamette Falls, the story that is uh, from the year 1900, Quarterly of the Oregon Historical Society, Volume 1, Number 2, Year 1900, written by H.S. Lyman, titled Reminiscence of Louis Labonte. And in this article, there's the story of the tribes who were wandering aimlessly throughout the Willamette Valley. They didn't have a place to catch fish, but also owing to the depredation of certain gigantic skookums. So they were being pawned by skookums, as the story suggests. Well, they find Willamette Falls to be the ideal fishing place and also a model scene of beauty, uh, and the the Indians had prospered here and had a a fishing village on the uh, uh, west side of the falls and a fishing village on the east side of the falls. Uh, there's a separate article or a separate story about the east side of the falls, actually. That's the Skookum and the Wonderful Boy, and that's the Oregon City side. But the story I'm talking about is um, they say that the Skookums followed them to Willamette Falls, and they were committing depredations over the large stocks of fish. And, uh, you know, they uh, so they were dealing with uh, these things. With, finally, they were dealing with uh, these things competing with them, so many tribes describe these things as cannibal in relation to people. But you, in this story, you get you, you get these stories where the tribes are wandering trying to get food, and and there's something that's you know they're competing with, and or you know or that's what I've put together, and you know they're actually being dealt with in a, a way where you know they're being killed or you know maybe even eaten by these things. Um, this involves food, you know, where people are catching fish and uh, people are hunting game, uh, things like that. Uh, you, you get the uh, these old uh, drawings that are on the uh, kivas in the desert southwest uh, in the canyon areas uh, and stuff, you know, along the Rio Grande. And uh, they have depictions on some of these kivas. And one of these is, is on the Internet, and it's kind of a popular one. It's these two big bodies that don't have necks, but they have very wide shoulders, and they have horns upon their heads, uh, these figures. And there's a deer down below them, and there's a guy who's on like a horse, presumably, or it almost kind of looks like an antelope, but he just shot an arrow into the deers, or the deer. But the two big bodies are right above that, and they have their arms on their side, and it looks like they're running down towards the deer, uh, I've kind of looked at this and evaluated this based on so many stories of Sasquatch uh, in, in, in Native American folklore, but also so many of the stories you get from hunters who encounter these things. Uh, but so many of the Native American stories and legends suggest people who are hunting, fishing, or variants of uh, hunting or fishing villages, large caches of food, and this being the creature's motive. Uh, but the uh, the depiction on the Kiva in the desert southwest uh, that's actually on the last page of the book is is you know uh, by Mira 
or no, it's uh, uh, what is uh, uh, Lisa A. Sheel in her book uh, Backyard Bigfoot. She says that this depiction on the Akiva is like 550 to 1500 years old. You know, with these two big bodies coming in for this deer, where this hunter just hit the deer, and like these mm-hmm. things are, you know, come appear to be coming into it uh, when you look at it that way. Well, you have the stories in the John Wilson Green book, you know, about, uh, you know, hunters, you know, shooting deer or whatever, and and, uh, Sasquatch just grabbing the deer right out of the bush right after the guy shot it, you know, and taking off with the deer. (laughs) Have you ever heard any of those those kind of stories? Oh, yeah. In fact, you know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of even nowadays hunters uh, reporting this very thing where they've uh, had their call kill, uh, whether it's elk or or a deer, and they either the, it's gone. I mean, they cannot find where they it was, you know, basically laid down. Or in some reports, they actually see a Sasquatch taken off with this, and that it goes along with um, not just deer and elk, but I've heard this with uh, with uh, wild boar, uh, even uh, you know where they've they, they've seen a yeah. Sasquatch take a wild boar. So yeah, I've definitely heard of of uh, reports and stories like this definitely yeah they're uh any they're they're big in the game i mean uh you know when you think about it you know and that's an interesting thing about that uh depiction on the kiva it's fairly you know it's on shutterstock it's a fairly popular uh photograph well i've seen it and you know who knows it's like wallpaper on some cell phones probably you know right. but uh, it depicts it depicts what people still describe today you know, hunting and having shot a deer and then seeing something, not with horns, though, exactly, but, you know, like big yeah. without a, a head set upon the body, without a neck, wide shoulders. Um, and uh, you get the description, you know, the, the horn thing is interesting, but you, I remember uh, Kathy Moskowitz's train on TV was mentioning the term mountain devil. And, you know, you get Mount Diablo State Park in Northern California on the very top on the placard, it uh, mentions what General Mariano Vallejo uh, and uh, his men had encountered uh, him and the Spanish when they were trying to go up to Mount Diablo. It says that a, str- a strange personage, or they had con- encountered uh, a strange personage or personage of evil, which is pretty interesting. So they were heading towards Mount Diablo, you know, not quite getting up, you know, towards the slope or whatever. And it describes, uh, uh, I can just read the thing here. Oh, yeah, please do. If you, yeah. don't, if you don't mind. Yeah, let me see if I can get some light here. Okay. Yeah, it says uh, on the placard on the on the very top of Mount Diablo, it says General Mariano Vallejo's account was somewhat different. In an 1850 version, Vallejo placed the incident at the foot of Mount Diablo, claiming that the Spanish were routed when an unknown personage or evil spirit appeared. In 1914, Vallejo's son, Platon, made his father the hero who had lassoed his this agent of his master, the devil. Well, the, the part in 1914 is, you know, his son, Platon, kind of adding a, an addendum to his father's account. But you see the 1850 version that General, General Mariano Vallejo had described was, you know, heading to the foot of Mount Diablo and seeing a, a quote, an unknown personage or evil spirit. Uh, but, you know, the placard shows, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that they were on horses and, uh, so they were, you know, like the cattle run on the Malala pictograph on the headwaters of the Umpqua River that I described they were doing this cattle run. You know, they're just running a bunch of animals with hooves, 
you know, and on the pictograph, you know, where you've got the cattle run, you've got the big shadowy form with a figure, small figure in dress on its shoulder. Uh, And to me, that kind of describes abduction. I mean, it's the same thing that was described by Paul Eads from from other people in the Dennis Martin case. Uh, but also you get the, uh, the Spanish, you know, heading up on horses, you know, the hooves and stuff, alerting the attention of something that goes after things like that, or at least that's what I, I think is, it had happened in that case, mm-hmm. you know, or at least I think that's what's being described. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but, and then the mountain is named Mount Diablo, you know, Mountain Devil. Uh, but there's also a pictograph further down in an area called Rock City. Uh, kind of across from where there's all these carvings in rock that are real deeply set in the rock across the street at the canyon at the terminal of a canyon that's almost worn off the rock that is a figure with a head without a neck, wide shoulders in a squatted stance. Uh, and it's at a lower elevation than the placard. The Mount Diablo is like 3,800, uh, almost 3,900 feet or something like that. So the pictograph actually is at a lower elevation. You know, I'm not sure of the exact elevation of the pictograph that was put there long ago, presumably by the uh, Chupkin, uh, from what I've researched, who would have inhabited that area. Uh, but you've also got, from the David Pauline's book, Tribal Bigfoot, the approximate elevation of 2,400 feet from, I think, over 350 Bigfoot sightings. You know, that was kind of like the approximate elevation that was put together was about 2,400 feet. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting when you have a pictograph, you know, that's on a mountain m- much lower than the peak that's, you know, below 3,900 feet, and who knows what it was, but it could have fell within that elevation that's, you know, some data that I've found in, in the Paul Ace book. Uh, but but interesting stuff when you add it up. You, you look into the term mountain devil, you get Mount Diablo State Park, and you get, uh, you know, the placard and the story uh, from the Spanish, and uh, his son describing it as a personage of evil and the naming of Mount Diablo. The figures with horns, with uh, heads without a neck, that are coming in after game shot by a hunter in the desert southwest. Um, you get uh, the story from... Uh, uh, the story from the the um, the uh, Nez Perce uh, of how Hell's Canyon and the Seven Devils Mountains uh, Mountains came to be named. They had this uh, legend that there were seven giants that came through that area, you know, near the Snake River uh, in Idaho, and these giants would migrate through there, you know, uh, kidnapping kids. And, uh, you know, no one knew what to do about it, you know. They, uh, you know, the animals didn't, in the story, the animals are the ones that are the victims, you know, and uh, they didn't know what to do. Uh, But then uh, eventually they, as the legend goes, they made this huge gash in the earth, and when the giants came, they filled this gash with boiling hot red liquid, and the giants fell in, and they were punished and turned into seven giant mountains, and Hell's Canyon was there where those giants couldn't cross. But it's all very suggestive of the area, you know, around the Seven Devils Mountains and uh, Hell's Canyon, uh, presumably from the Nez Perce uh, story, or at least that's what I gather from that. 
mm-hmm. what they're describing, you know, giants being in uh, in that, you know, neck of the woods. Yeah, I know. It's fascinating stuff. One of the things, I've done a lot of research, uh, uh, well, all over the place, but one of the areas is the Tillamook Forest region, the coastal range of Oregon, and the Nehalem uh, tribes described Sasquatch uh, uh, historically taking their salmon off their lines and uh, they come back and they're gone. They find the footprints. Sometimes they even see them. Uh, and one of the things I find fascinating is in a lot of these areas, as you've been describing, in a lot of these areas you know, around the country, but I'm more familiar with the Pacific Northwest, is these these names, uh, you know, with, with Skookum, evil spirits, the devil, you know, devil. Uh, even in some cases, um, um, Almost, you know, a hairy man and whatnot, and there is uh, seems to be a pattern there with within the uh, across the board, uh, some sort of similarity with the Native Americans uh, naming areas, specifically based on uh, things they've come across. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, they've uh, there's uh, a lot of you know I was reading some uh, some something from a. a, a professor in, at Kentucky University or University of Kentucky, I don't know, uh, probably Kentucky University, but uh, he gathered, you know, stories, uh, folklore from, you know, some of the most rural area in Kentucky, and one area that he gathered folklore from uh, is uh, from a lady named uh, Nancy McDaniel, I think of Big Leatherfoot Creek, or but you get the name like Leatherfoot Creek, you know, that's kind of weird. Um, but the story, uh, the story that, uh, you know, the old kind of folk translation of, uh, like a wild kind of, you know, giant hairy human, uh, you know, that lives in a cave and, uh, you know, in the mountains and, uh, you, you get the, uh, it's interesting because in that case, you know, in that part of the Appalachians, you know, uh, Smoky Mountains area, you get folklore that goes from the Shawnee, uh, to like some of the first early settlers, you know, uh, in the Appalachians, you know, some of the first uh, early white settlers, uh, you know, have stories that are uh, very old and uh, describing like, you know, hairy giant humans, you know, kidnapping people and stuff and taking them off to a cave and living with them in a, a cave. Um, you know, you never know what kind of uh, folklore you can uh, you can gather. I was thinking about the Alhambra Valley region, actually, which sounds kind of uh, weird, but uh, it's actually an area, you know, that's uh, outside of uh, the uh, Bay Area. It's it's uh, between Pinol Valley and uh, Martinez, and I used to do a little research through there, and uh, there was some interesting stuff. Um, you know, there was uh, this one place on the side of the road where there was boards that were missing that were always put back, and uh, and then they were missing, and, uh, you know, I always thought that was interesting. And, uh, you know, I always find it interesting when you find something where probably nobody's ever been, you know, how many people have been to the moon and how many people, uh, you know, they've had people in outer space, they've had them, uh, you know, down in the Pacific Ocean. But I just remember uh, one time I was just in the Alhambra Valley, just outside of Martinez, and kind of looking down uh, a road, uh, across like a, a big gully, something that you couldn't cross. And then there was a flat and then there were these trees uh, and everything below these trees looked like just uh, like a dark forest or like a, 
like a gingerbread house or something, you know. Gotcha. But they, <laughs> yeah. got, they, they got these old stories that even pick up that, uh, you know, don't even make people think about Sasquatch, you know, like the three bears, you know. Uh, you know, and who's sleeping in my bed and, and this type of thing, and who's been eating my food. And it makes you wonder if this is someone who found, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, places where one of these things, some of the, a family of these things was bedded down in the woods or something and went and checked it out and <laughs> laid in, laid in <laughs> where they were sleeping and took something that they were eating. And then, and then they came in and, and encountered them and, you know, but, but, uh, you, you get so many stories of uh, uh, bear men and uh, bear women and bears that could walk on two legs and uh, and bear abductions that in my book actually you know one of the things that I put in the uh, in the uh, back of the book is an uh, an index behavior profile and association index and what uh, the, some of the strongest associations you get from tribes that are not related from the Penobscot out in Maine. Uh, to the Eskimos in Alaska, you've got stories of bear men and bear abductions and bear men kidnapping women and having half human children and all of this stuff. You get a, you know, a bear abductor stories from the journal of American folklore going back to 1888, uh, among the Coniag tribe of Eskimos off Coniag Island. You know, you get stories of the bear abductor, and you also get the stories of the bear abductor with the Penobscot over in Maine, uh, described as abducting, you know, kids again. Uh, and you get the, uh, you know, story stories from the Sioux of bear men, or you know, bears that walk around on two legs that are described as really strong. Uh, but you get that interesting suggestion around among so many tribes, the stories of a uh, uh, bear men and bear women and bears that could walk on two legs, bear abductions. And uh, you, you even get stuff like that on TV. You know, I was watching uh, uh, an episode of Monster Quest, Monster Close to Encounters, and this lady, uh, Amanda Schlipner, had described her encounter. And when she was describing it in detail, uh, you know, I put this in my book. She says, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of looked like a bear, but it, but a person at the same time. You know, like like a bear on two legs. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting. You know, when you get that uh, that parallel example, not from 1888, you know, internal American folklore, you know, and and uh, and stuff, but you get that from like a modern eyewitness, you know, describing them. Absolutely. You know, like a human, like a very big human, just covered in in thick hair. You know. Um, but but you get a, some stories in contrast. You get the uh, a story from the Snoqualmie uh, in Washington uh, from 1924, written by uh, uh, Franz Boas, uh, describing a, uh, a, a figure, uh, a big giant monster woman that you know goes after uh, you know kids that are playing near a river right after their parents make camp. You know after the kids are playing, uh, and then. This story, uh, you know, is from 1924, uh, and it's called The Stolen Children, and that's from among the Snoqualmie, and that was originally told by Snoqualmie Jim to Franz Boas uh, and Herman Haberlin, who wrote that article, you know, Washington, 1924, article titled The Stolen Children. Well, in uh, the 1935 Journal of American Folklore from among the Penobscot in Maine, 
you get um, a story titled uh, The Abandoned Boy Escapes from the Cannibal Sorceress. And so this is Maine uh, 11 years later, but they have a story of like a giant, you know, one of these things in female form, uh, taking a kid and presumably keeping him for food is what the story suggests. Uh, but she always feeds him food behind her back, you know, so she so that the child can't see her face. But he ends up fooling her, you know, and she falls asleep, and then he looks at her, and it says the poor boy was frightened almost to death, for already she had bitten off both her lips as far as she could reach with both teeth. Um, but you, uh, you get the story of, uh, you know, this kid wakes this thing up, this thing chases him through the woods, and uh, it's described as so big that uh, as the boy's running, the, uh, the, the thing says, uh, I'm too big for you to escape. Soon I will overcome you. And, uh, but, but interestingly enough, how they're, you know, describing these things, um, you know, it's real big, having an all-consuming hunger. And uh, you, you get stories from both east and west, you know, going way back, describing uh, these things just being a menace to children, which is kind of unsettling. Very um, unsettling. But I, was, but I was reading in the Lauren Coleman book, Bigfoot, True Story of Apes in America, about uh, the guy who was one of the producers or had some part in the Blair Witch Project. And that uh, part of his interest was some of what he said was the ISO projects or in search of projects that were, you know, 70s shows that talked about Bigfoot and and stuff like that. But when you get someone making a, a movie about something that can't be seen is hidden and there's all this old history and that it's a menace to children, similar to what so many of the native American legends and stories are suggesting. Uh, and even, you know, some of the stuff out as far as the missing person stuff in contrast, um, you know, it, it, it seems interesting when you hear about someone else had uh, had a, uh, done some research and but you don't know what they had found out, you know? Because uh, I know I know what I've read in the Lauren Coleman book about a guy was interested in something and uh, was part of the backdrop for a movie, uh, but I don't know anything about his research. But a lot of what I've researched, in contrast, is is that you know where you're 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 reading about a Washington tribe and. and and then you're reading about uh, a tribe in Maine, and they're they're kind of giving you a similar a similar rap or a similar detail uh, in in stuff. It makes you wonder, you know. There's other people that have done research uh, apparently, and uh, but you know a lot of people, you know, don't know about it or I don't know about it. But it's kind of interesting though, you know. Oh, extremely, and, yeah, extremely <laughs> interesting. I mean, I'm starting, you know. When you when you start getting into the the historical stuff and then comparing it to nowadays and and in looking across you know North America in general, I, I do believe you find a lot of similarities. And I mean I, I mean I assume you found a lot of similarities in in all your research. You're very well versed in in these stories. You've had to have found quite a lot of similarities. Have have you found any? Uh, I mean, is there a lot of dissimilarities? Are there are a lot of things out there that are just that don't match up, or are you finding a lot of similarities in 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 the Native American uh, world when it comes to these historical uh, reports? Yeah, there's it's it's 
just seem it just seems to be kind of a similar thread through and through. Um, you know, there's there's some stuff I've read that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, I was reading the Giants, Cannibals, and Monsters, uh, a story among the Sioux, that I, I couldn't translate at all, and it seemed like a bunch of misinformation. You know, the term Giants was brought up over and over again, but it um, it it uh, it, it was almost like it was just too technical to even understand, and I couldn't even verse the thing out. Um, you know, I, I that might be the one piece of, or a couple pieces of, that might be the one piece of misinformation that I've read was was one account that was unsourced that, uh, regardless, it just didn't make any sense. But it makes you under wonder the context of some of the stories that were gathered by Native Americans. Was it was it under a premise? of war or something or was there was there bad relations when the story was gathered or something like that uh, but right. for the most part I, I think I think uh, almost I want to say almost 100% of the stuff that I've read as far as uh, you know it pretty much reads out pretty plainly and uh, it seems to make sense as far as having a similar thread with so many of the other stories uh, uh, among among the tribes that I've read and heard. And uh, I was just reading one uh, not too long ago here uh, from among the Wishram, which is a tribe in 1962, there was a census in Washington state and there was less than, you know, 60 Wishram on a Washington census in 1962. Uh, so, you know, you go back to a 1905 book from among the Wishram and, you know, you can't get really a contamination of proof from something that's, you know, aside from where we are as an American culture today, you know what I mean? Something yeah, that yeah. hardly anyone, hardly anyone knows about. And then so you go back and, uh, but they have the suggestion that, uh, they, they have the story that owl is messenger for the out, out of hell on. That's what their name is. Uh, that the call of an owl will send someone into the woods and they won't return. And then they, you know, blame this on their uh, creature described as Bigfoot. Uh, but, but even today you hear stories of uh, these things making owl noises and stuff. And, uh, but, you know, again, you get a, a sinister reverent uh, in a story like that, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of that in a lot of these reports and encounters of this sinister nature. You know, I think back to, uh, you know, you were talking about 1924 with, with one of these uh, reports. You know, I think of Albert Osman, you know, of his, uh, you know, supposed abduction. Um, I found a lot of truth in Albert's, uh, you know, encounter. Uh, and it does yeah. correlate to a lot of what I've read personally I'm um, not done quite the research you've done I mean, by far, but uh, to what a, a lot of Native Americans report has transpired in the past with their 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 um, stories. Do you find that? Yeah, there we go. You yeah, brought yeah, up another you, one that actually. Oh, you yeah, brought up actually. Yeah. You brought up another account that actually matches uh, the story of a man who was doing similar to Albert Austin, going out on his own, uh, you know, hunting, and encountered Choanito was taken back by Chonito to live throughout the winter and then brought back to his familiar surroundings. There is the case of Albert Osman as well. And, uh, you know, he had, uh, in, in, the, 
a story I've heard is uh, he had fooled the Sasquatch with a can of snuff, which it unfortunately ate the entire contents of. And as this thing was hacking, you know, and sick and trying to get water, Austin was able to take off. Uh, Is that... Have you? Is that similar to what you've heard as well? Exactly. And one of the things I remember, because before you know, I had you jump on the show with me. We had talked prior to this, and we were talking about the, these valleys where uh, these reports where it, you know, people abducted go, you know, up and down, up and down. And Albert Hoffman said yes. just that in his report, where you're going up a, a mountain, down a mountain, or up a, a ravine and down a ravine, and and that stuck out to me. There's, a, there's the other abduction account by J.W. Burns, documented in Wide World magazine, 1940, uh, described uh, the article titled, What Happened to Seraphine Long?, in which Seraphine Long describes having been kidnapped by a male Chowanito, and I can't remember if she was made to live with him throughout the winter, or it was something like a year. She, she had went, and she was taken uh, back to live with this thing, and uh, this was a young male and apparently it still lived with its parents in a, a cave and uh, this young woman back with it, you know, according to her, she had to cross the river with it. And uh, she was there for a year, uh, you know, and she had uh, complained and made it such, so difficult that uh, she was brought back. Um, but you do get these stories of, uh, of, of adults uh, even, you know, being taken and, uh, you know, kidnapped or abducted by these things. In review, there's uh, quite a few of those reports, actually. Um, but that was, you know, y- y- you know, you can see where you see kind of a pattern. Uh, the pattern that I've seen uh, too much, actually, I, I think is the, uh, the pattern of people who are much littler. Um, and uh, that's what I think is is suggested in the Native American folklore, and that's kind of what's a lot of in the Missing 4-in-1 book, too. Right. The thing about the screams and yells, the thing, about, the thing about people who had screamed before they had disappeared, you know, I just find that too bizarre. You know, it's something, you know, that's described as as, as, as big and powerful as, as uh, you know, Bigfoot, you know, Sasquatch, um, you know, it's just a variable that seems, um, like, like what, what else could it have been? And then, um, you get the, uh, the stuff from the missing four in one book where the, the individual had the scratches from head to toe and even Paul Eads had said on the radio it to him. And, uh, it, it almost seemed like an, uh, a big man carrying someone through the brush and, and stuff like that, you know? With those kind of scratches, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, but, with, with the with the children, you know, I mean, you're talking about a, a certain stature, a certain size. I mean, uh, regardless if it's a, a cougar, a bear, or a sasquatch, or another person, they're somewhat easy pickings, and that's a horrible thing to say. But just looking at it for the fact that we're not talking about full-grown adults, though, you know, though that has been reported, you know, uh, adult abductions, the children. Um, are uh, much easier to carry off and and uh, take down. Uh, uh, you know, it's a horrible thing to say, but it's it's the I truth. Do, yeah, I do know. I do know that um, from what I've gathered from the Yakima in southern Washington uh, to the Klamath in southern Oregon to the Modoc in northern California to the Paiute uh, in Nevada 
to the Four Corners region, the Navajo of the desert southwest, to the Zuni of New Mexico. They all have similar stories or similar detail of these, you know, big, giant, you know, forest-dwelling humans pushing people off of the edges of cliffs, trails, and mountain passes. Um, the actually, actually, the Paiute, I think, from a 1930 Journal, Journal of American Folklore, uh, or I, I, I believe. Uh, anyways, I have three different divisions of Paiute in the book. Uh, among these, there's the mention of he who kicks off the rocks, also he who kicks them off the rocks, um, and uh, you get the stories from. Uh, the Yakima that described when they would hunt in the area called the goat rocks. And that's probably the goat rocks wilderness that yes. is on the map on the, on the reservation. They say that they walk in a zigzag zigzag uh, pattern around a trail. One person would stand on the left, another person in front of them on the right, but a ways up ahead of them. And then another person a ways up ahead of them, but on the left, you know, kind of zigzagging around the trail to watch out for the stick shower Indian that they say, you know, would push them off of the cliff while they were hunting for mountain goats. And uh, a lot of these, uh, the suggestion you get from uh, the, uh, the, the Navajo, the Yakima, and the Paiute is when they were hunting. You know, when they're hunting, apparently they're competing, but they may not know that. Or, well, uh, they knew that, but a lot of hunters don't know that, you know, that when they're going hunting, they may be competing as well. Uh, one of one thing that one thing that got me started on researching um, and finding out what I can from old literature and stuff like this, and is uh, something I saw on TV back when I was just started watching the documentary stuff on Bigfoot, and it was chimps that were going after monkeys that were eating the same fruit as them. It was uh, what it was is it was monkeys going up in the trees getting fruit. And the chimps were just kind of standing back watching the monkeys. And then after a minute, you know, the monk, the chimps went in the tree and started pursuing the monkeys and they would overpower the monkeys and they would actually uh, dispatch of the monkeys and, and eat them, you know? Uh, yeah. Do you know, do you know this about some of the competition between chimps and monkeys? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I, you know, it's, it, that's fascinating because I have actually looked into uh, that sort of uh, thing, uh, because I think it applies. Uh, me personally, I think it applies directly with Sasquatch research personally. But I think that right. also applies back to uh, when we talk about, uh, and I'm sure this is maybe covered in your book, maybe not. But with Native American reports, you know, uh, especially then there was there that was a direct competition because Native Americans lived in the areas that Sasquatch would have lived in, so there was direct competition. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a little more deep thinking to think that, you know, it's not the same variable of just picking fruit or something, you know, like that kind of competition, but the competition over, over game, you know what I mean? Something this big would, uh, you know, I think scares the game away quite a bit. You get so many Bigfoot reports where people go into the woods, describe not even hearing a bird or anything. Uh, you know, and, and feeling the presence of Sasquatch or, you know, mm-hmm. I haven't mm-hmm. read a sightings reports in quite some time. Uh, but I, I remember that being some 
sometimes the backdrop was when they go into a forest and it seems like there wasn't even a bird in the area, you know? So you'd, you'd be dealing with something that, you know, might even scare all the game away or, you know, is too big or too slow or can't keep up with. And then you got somebody who can just, you know, go in and hit it from a distance and, you know, carry it out. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a little deeper thinking than something that would just watch for someone to pick up a, a piece of fruit, you know, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. but it, uh, it, again, the Sasquatch is described to be part human. I mean, the footprint is like a human being, uh, you know, so it, it, who knows? I, I guess that it, it's got a serious interest as far as, you know, a lot of the game that hunters are going after and fish, that type of stuff too. Um, one thing that would that would work out is uh, hunters who, uh, you know, understood that, you know, the Sasquatch mostly wants what's inside of the animal, not so much what's on the outside, but, you know, the organs, you know, the liver, the kidneys, the heart, that's the stuff that it would eat. This is often the stuff that most hunters don't really have a need for uh, as as much as the meat that's, you know, like the uh, – the, the the ribs and and the uh, the legs you know some of the stuff yeah. they can get some some of the meat they use you know some hunters uh, you know might uh, or some bigfoot researchers might think you know teaming up with hunters you know getting them to uh, uh, gut the animal naked for bait I don't know <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, yeah. it is uh, that's that's that would be the thing's interest I think is mostly what it can get out of an animal. Uh, you even get the stories from the Penobscot and Maine that described in the Cherokee, uh, you know, way far south from the uh, the Penobscot and Maine, uh, the Cherokee were, uh, you know, around the Carolinas and, you know, not not as far north as, uh, you know, like the Shawnee and uh, some of some of the tribes, you know, way way ways away, you know the. Uh, I don't know exact distance, but probably right, over right. a thousand miles from Maine to uh, where the Cherokee were. But they both described these things eating the liver of uh, animals that they get. And um, but you know, I think that that one thing that Bigfoot researchers could do is definitely talk to more hunters, people fishing, you know, that type of thing. I think that's who's probably who would be encountering these things more. Um, it's the variable of someone going out looking for them, you know what I mean? If they're not hunting or if they're not gathering food, they won't really have much of a likely chance, I think, of, of even encountering one maybe. I don't know. Yeah, it seems to me, even with the Native American reports, there was an attraction there or, or not that, I mean, a bit of maybe of a competition, but uh, the, the, the Native Americans were gathering their food, gathering. You know, they're gathering. Um, you know, they're they're hunting. They're gathering food. They're they're collecting. You know, um, salmon. And so there's a, a, a source of food there. And uh, do you think do you do you in your research have you found Sasquatch to be very opportunistic in its approach to uh, you know contacting or interaction with humans and you know Native Americans and and everything else. Um. Well, from what I've from what I've read, um, you know, the the interesting thing is the thing about the Albert Ostman and and the other thing about the hunter who is kidnapped by Cho and Ito, because you I wouldn't really expect that very often. But then you also do get the story from uh, 
Nancy McDaniel of Leatherfoot Creek of a hunter who went into a cave and describes being next to a hairy woman called a yeehaw or a yahoo or something, uh, the southern term that they have called it. Um, so you even get another story of a hunter going in a cave and cohabiting with one of these things. Um, but that's um, – I. The thing about um, that, I I think that I don't know. You know, the the whole abduction thing is is real. It, it's it, it's tough to say if it's. Sometimes it seems to be real bad, and sometimes it seems like you get the stories from like Hostman and uh, the Wenatchee Man, and uh, that aren't that bad. Um, but a lot of the contrast you get uh, over and over again in the stories uh, seems to be something where you know, people really kind of want to, you know, more more than anything, stay away from them and kind of keep an eye out for them, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, you just get, um, excuse me, i got to get some water here. Yeah, I, I know you're battling but with the sickness, and I appreciate you still joining us. <laughs> yeah, but as far as the thing about people going looking for them, uh, you know, I don't think they have much a chance unless they're either hunting or fishing or if they're dealing in some kind of food. Uh, but that's you, almost all the Native American legends. You get the backdrop of people hunting and fishing, uh, and that's where the, the backdrop is. That's where the story happens. You know, that's yeah, where the yeah. Sasquatch encounter happens. Uh, is it a, a fishing village or, a, you know, someone hunting, going out, uh, and uh, encountering these things? Right, um, right. You know, you, I, I, um, I had an encounter back in 2011, and I was on a fishing trip, and uh, we were catching fish. And I have to assume that that may have played a part in I don't know. Um, that's just hypothesizing. After spending many, many nights and days thinking about this, that could have been a uh, thing. But I was, I was remote backpacking, and I was putting myself out, out there where, you know, uh, there's not a whole lot of people going out to these areas. I mean, you do get your, your traffic, but not, not extensive traffic. But one of the things we were doing were, was fishing, and I always, you know, number one, um, and this is stats here, is most reports uh, nowadays, uh, today's day and age, come from roadside crossings. That's the number one. People are driving and something, you know, they'll see a Sasquatch or reported to have seen a Sasquatch cross a road. And then, yeah. and then you, you, you go down the line, and it's, it's hunters, it's fishing, uh, people fishing, it's people hiking. Uh, or people camping, putting themselves out there. And so, uh, once again, uh, if I'm looking back at um, some of these historical reports, especially Native American stuff, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're actually in their environment, and a lot of times you're doing something of interest or you're collecting food or you're, you know, of that nature. And that, I think, ties in a lot. I don't I know. Am I, am I way off? No, you're, you're right on. Um, you know, it's definitely the stuff that's going to appeal to its interest and I think when people look at sightings reports uh, more, you know, they, they can probably find what, what it was that was the thing's interest anyway, you know, I think. But uh, um, it's, it's – oh, as far as uh, – I wanted to read, like, a couple things uh, from the book, if that's okay, if, if we still have time. Oh, uh, absolutely, yeah. Some of, the, some of the stuff that we'll, – we'll see which, what you think about this. Um, but, you know, some of the old, old literature describing these things uh, were, you know, they weren't, they weren't called Bigfoot or they weren't called, you know, Sasquatch. But they'd, they'd describe something that could tear a tree out of the ground and, you know, use the, use the roots as weapons. 
you know, and fight people off, which is pretty interesting. But uh, this is from the uh, Passamaquoddy of Maine and New Brunswick, and this is from the uh, July through September 1889, July 2nd, or sorry, Volume 2, Number 6, edition of the Journal of American Folklore. That is, yeah, July through September. Uh, and the article of Superstitions of the Passamaquoddies, this was documented by a priest, Father O'Dowd, and he describes a phantom uh, known as uh, Keywalk, and he says, as quote, the Passamaquoddies believe that up in the Canadian forest there lives a frightful and monstrous old witch called Keywalk, who eats human flesh and has a merry feast when she gets an Indian in her fatal hug. Many a red man's bones have been ground between her teeth by man, beast, or spirit. She tears up a tree by the roots and fights her opponent with the great trunk and branches. Uh, but that's from 80, uh, 1889, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, interestingly enough, I mean, uh, it's giving us a suggestion of something that, you know, goes after people. And if it's threatened in any way, it, you know, grab a tree and uproot it and bite somebody with the roots. Um, I think it was interesting that you mentioned uh, the uh, some of the stuff from the Tillamook, the Tillamook Nehalem. Uh, they actually have the uh, old stories that uh, I think it was uh, Elizabeth Gerd Jacobs had documented, and it's from, I think, 1890 stuff, you know, that uh, she had uh, transcribed. Uh, but some of the stories of what they called wild man and wild woman near Neocony Mountain. Uh, Neocony Mountain is, uh, I guess, one of the bigger mountains on the coast in Oregon. and. Yeah. You have Tillamook and Nehalem. The Tillamook tribe lived in Tillamook. The Nehalem tribe lived in Nehalem. Uh, but they had described, you know, wild woman and wild man living on this mountain. And uh, there is the story where there was, uh, you know, they were doing something with, some, you know, some fish they were drying in a, a house, you know, up the New Hellam River. Uh, and all of a sudden they heard the brush cracking real loudly, you know, branches breaking. They knew that no normal animal could be making this noise. Uh, so they took off to the other side of the river. And then all of a sudden they described hearing a tremendous crash. Uh, and, uh, you know, like the whole house was knocked down or whatever that had the fish in it. Uh, and then the next day, uh, somebody went over across uh, the other side of the Nahalem River. And according to uh, this book, you know, a wild man had knocked down the house with the fish. Um, but that's a lot similar to what the tribes on the British Columbia coast say as well. Uh, some of the stuff in the James Wallace book, Wakuda Legends, say the same thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, these tribes presumably didn't look next door to each other. And um, But but the, the uh, Tillamook and the Helen also uh, have a story where they the parents had left the kids uh, at the base of Neocani Mountain and went out to gather clams. And when they were gone, wild woman comes in, and uh, the, the 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 parents tell the kids the Indian rule before they leave not to eat anything while the parents are gone. Well, the kids eat all the salmon eggs that are there anyway, and according to the story, this is wild woman's favorite food. So she comes in and sniffs all their mouths, and you know, according to the story, eats the ones that he eaten the most. Uh, the father, you know, who had had the most children killed by a wild woman and starved himself and then ate a bunch of salmon eggs all on the third day uh, so that wild woman would come after him. 
But but interestingly enough, it's almost it's describing and uh, someone else had written a book that uh, is Portland, Oregon, that was real big at one time called Mortimer and James, I think. Uh, but anyways, they uh, they did a book about the uh, Tillamook and the Hellam Indians in 1967 that kind of talks about the story a little more. And they said it seemed real weird because the story describes, you know, parents leaving kids alone, uh, kids eating a bunch of food, a jealous female primate that goes after them, you know, kills them out of jealousy. Uh, and then by the parents, it's chased to a cave and then burned inside of a cave, you know, and you, you get a, you know, so many stories where the thing is chased to a cave and burned into a cave and all of this. It makes yeah. you wonder if there's cave, if there's caves that are out there that have, you know, like bone remains, like the ones they found in the Hada Lovelock Cave. You know, yeah. there was yeah. uh, there was the story there was the story in Sarah Winnemucca's book, uh, Life Among the Paiutes. You know, in which she describes the Sitakas that would come into the Paiute camps and uh, dig trail dig holes in the trails. So when the Paiutes would run, they'd fall into these holes, and the Sitakas would come and throw rocks at them and, and take them off as food and all of this, you know, and the Paiute were tired of it. So they found their cave and they, uh, you know, took a bunch of wood there. And they, in, in the story, this 1883 book, it describes these Sitakas grabbing the wood and pulling it inside the cave, you know, almost like a monkey being handed something or a gorilla being handed something, thinking they're getting something. And uh, as the story relates, the whole filled with wood, and then they uh, yelled at these things, hey, stop eating people like beasts or we'll set the cave on fire, at which they actually do. And interestingly enough, uh, after this 1883 book in 1930, uh, University of California, Berkeley did an, uh, an uh, exhibition, uh, you know, to uh, location on his Lovelock Cave, and they uh, dug up, uh, as David uh, Hatcher Childress uh, writes in his book, Yeti, uh, Yeti's Sasquatch and Harry Giants, uh, they had dug up uh, uh, a number of uh, giant, you know, larger size skeletons, you know, like uh, above seven foot. And uh, they had pulled out 60 of these skeletons out of this Lovelock Cave in Nevada, uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, but that being taken from the 1883 uh, book, Life Among the Paiutes, uh, and then the 1930s uh, uh, expedition, you know, an expedition of uh, 60 bodies. And uh, it, and I was watching recently because people ask, well, where are the bones? Um, uh, it was on a, uh, an episode of Ancient Aliens. It was at the Lovelock Cave Museum over there in Winnemucca, uh, Nevada. They had uh, one drawer. And in this drawer, there was a jaw that was left. And, uh, you know, I guess compared to, uh, uh, you know, a mandible of a human or human, yeah. uh, a, cop- a copy of one, the giant jaw uh, sat right over the top of that. I mean, much bigger than, a, you know, a human lower jaw. Uh, but you supposedly get a bunch of, uh, you know, bone finds throughout history, but it makes you wonder where the bones are, though, you know. It does, it does, and and Leon, we're we're closing in on the end of the show here. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating talking with you. You are a plethora 
of information. Uh, seriously, um, where can uh, we're going to have you back on the show? Uh, we're going to do a part two, if not a part three, because I know we got a lot to talk about here. There was so much I want to cover tonight, um, but we, we're running out of time. We'll have you back on here probably after the uh, new year or somewhere in there in between. Um, but where can people find your book? I know, uh, share the title again, and where can people find your book? And, uh, yeah. uh, and we'll get you back on the show. Yeah, the, uh, the book is uh, Bigfoot uh, backslash Sasquatch Resurgence of Native American Indian Legends. So it's Bigfoot slash Sasquatch Resurgence. Not even bring up the title, but the full title is Bigfoot Sasquatch Resurgence of Native American Indian Legends. Right now, uh, the book is only available on Amazon. Uh, I've uh, been way too busy, but I'm, uh, this book is in a format where uh, a lot of the le- letters are in bold print, so a person can kind of just read the bold print, and that's the important kind of information. It allows you to kind of just skim through the book. It's a different style of writing. I had people asking me about, uh, uh, you know, audio books and things like that. But uh, really, yeah, just the uh, – uh, in this book, I've done a format where uh, a lot of the just highlight key information is in bold, so it allows you to kind of skim through and read it that way. But uh, the most ideal way of of, acts, of reading this book is uh, the chapters that are numbered uh, 1 through – 98, these being uh, all just individual tribes, you know, so you can pick any tribe and go right to that section of the book. It's like 98 different chapters. And wow. some of these, yeah. uh, like the, the Paiute, you know, you've got three different divisions of Paiute, um, you know, but it's just the Paiute, you know, that we would probably be most familiar with, you know, uh, you know, is not knowing as much uh, until you get into the details of the book. Uh, the Eskimo, uh, the the, um, the Eskimo uh, tribe. There's five different divisions uh, of of Eskimo yeah, in the book. You know, different areas: Koniak Island, Southwest Alaska. Um, but you know, just really, it's I think it's just the strongest study anyone's ever done on the subject, as far as going back to the oldest, most uncontaminated information you can find uh, and then kind of going forward from there. But I've used uh, a lot of the uh, Bigfoot books uh, from uh, Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence by Grover S. Krantz, you know, which was formerly Bigfoot Prints, uh, right. Jeff Meldrum's Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, some of the Lauren Coleman books. Those are kind of the go-to books in the back that I've used to kind of uh, check through a lot of the older, older stuff that seems to be describing Sasquatch. But then there's also the place names books and the map uh, books that I've used to kind of further cross-reference uh, in this. And uh, there's a look at some of the missing four-in-one stuff too. There's uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the things, a lot of the things about weather uh, changing. You know, that's a lot of the Native American uh, legends describing these forest uh, forest giants as well. You know, that the weather will change and things like that. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the the book is uh is online. You can enter you could just put in the words Bigfoot Sasquatch Resurgence and the title should come up. And yeah, yeah. Just like we'll anything else to get online. Yeah, we'll definitely put put a link in with that uh for this show. Uh I think it's a fascinating 
book. I, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I've not yet read this, but I've talked to you enough, and, and I was enthralled with uh, uh, our discussions, and, and I can see you've got a clear passion for this. And so really excited awesome. to read this book. No, absolutely excited Oops. to read this book. And uh, hopefully uh, um, it's shortly here we'll get you back on the show because we didn't even cover half of the stuff I wanted to talk about right. with, with in regards to – uh, how you've taken this book and and the research of this subject to another level in regards to maps and whatnot and 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 weather and locations and that to me is above and beyond a lot of the books that are out there and a lot of the research that's out there. So uh, I just want to thank you for joining me, Leon, and uh, we'll have you back well, on the show. You, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, you know the thing that people should do uh, if they're interested in the subject is. Uh, you know, just best read as much of the books about the subject you can find. I mean, that's kind of what I've done. And, uh, you know, just go as far back as you can. And uh, if there's any proof of something like this, you know, there would be proof going way back, way back in the history books. And uh, yeah. there is. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely, absolutely well said, Leon. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, joining us this evening. Uh, we'll have you back on the show. Uh, I, I have a, a feeling that you'll be on the show quite a quite a lot because uh, I'm enthralled with with uh, the research you've done. Okay, appreciate Thanks, it, Leon. Bro. Hey, have a great evening and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Appreciate you putting up with my cold. <laughs> and uh, have <laughs> no, a no, nice you, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, I, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, talking to Leon. He's um, a plethora of information. He's done his homework. He's uh, researched this subject for quite some time now, and uh, you know uh, the proof's in the pudding. Uh, so go ahead and and get a hold of of Leon's book here. You know Bigfoot slash Sasquatch: Resurgence of Native American Indian Legends, uh, and uh, you know delve into it. Uh, you know read this stuff. Uh, see what uh, you know. He's taking it from the mouth of the Native Americans and uh, in, in putting it into book format and done his research. So excited to have him on the show and uh, make a great Christmas present. And you know what? If you're a researcher or enthusiast, heck, uh, you know, good way, to, good way to pass your day. So we'll have Leon back on the show. I uh, want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas here, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Monster X Radio. I appreciate everybody joining in tonight and uh, looking forward to uh, having Leon back on the show. Everybody have a great evening. Thanks again. Squatch on and stay squatchy.